Welcome to the Newslens Radio. I'm Edward White. Now that was the sound of Noise Steve, a Taiwanese musician and one of several artists being featured in Taipei on Saturday by White Fungus as part of its Depopulate 07 event. White Fungus started life in Wellington, New Zealand. It was initially a one-off publication put together by brothers Mark and Ron Hansen in 2004. The first edition of the magazine was made in protest of an inner-city motorway being built through an area that was then home to a vibrant arts and creative community. As the story goes, Mark and Ron produced the magazine on a photocopier before wrapping it in Christmas paper and throwing it through the entrances of local businesses. Thirteen years later, White Fungus is now produced from Taichung, on the western coast of central Taiwan and it's part of a broader project spanning genres and geography. The magazine is sold in more than 20 countries, and the brothers, along with their wider team of collaborators, have curated shows and hosted events around the world. I caught up with Ron at their office in Taichung earlier this week, and started by asking him to describe the magazine and what someone can expect when they turn the pages. You know, it's, it's a simple but difficult question to answer, uh, one that we've been asked many times over the years. I mean, White Fungus is an arts magazine, but I would like to think it's an arts magazine like no other. Uh, there's a strong component of visual art and sound art, but we also mix in history, politics, comics, and, you know, we've, we've published fashion before. And, uh, you know, we try and reinvent it each time. And I guess, if anything we want the audience to expect surprises and we want that to be the, the main draw card. Can you talk a little bit about the content selection process? Because as you say, every edition is so different and you're kind of selecting from a world of different possibilities. So how do you decide what goes in? You know, it's a good question. Um, usually it starts off, there might be one or two articles that we really want to do and we'll build it up around around those. Uh, you know. Although there's a lot of different kinds of content in the magazine, we don't really view it as eclectic in that we think that there are a lot of connections between the material. Uh, there may not be obvious connections, but nonetheless, we, we you almost think of it as like a DJ mix, you know, that is going to hopefully take you somewhere, um, but there may be some ruptures along the way. But, you know, there's various artists that we keep track of over the years, and... and there are artists that, we've, that we hope to include at, at some point when the right time comes. And we've got our different boxes we need to tick, I guess. I mean, you know, we, we want to have some New Zealand content in there. We want to have some Taiwanese content. We want to have some visual art content and some experimental music content. And there are also our various contributors that we work with, and we want to see, well, what, what ideas do they have? What, what knowledge do they have? Um, and it all, and then there's just stuff that comes in through our inbox, through social media, through our just daily sort of meanderings about the place, um, and we just try and tie it all together into some coherent form. 
So if you look at the latest edition that came out last year, this was White Fungus 15. That's right. What what was the DJ set? How did it how did it how did it sound? Yeah, I think uh, 15. I mean, 15 for me is a really satisfying issue because it's the first issue where I personally didn't write anything. Now, in our sixth issue, this is going back, you know, more than 10 years, I wrote every article in the whole magazine. So that's the opposite extreme of it. So in this issue, there was nothing by me in there. And so that was kind of, one, because I was too busy to contribute anything, but it was satisfying that we'd reached a point where we had enough contributors around the world that I didn't, we could produce a, a, a good issue without a contribution by me. But yeah, where is it? The last one... It's, it's it's quite you know it's it's quite smooth I think compared to some of our earlier issues were quite abrasive but it's it's like a journey through the world you know I mean in this issue you know you go we stop in the Pacific um, it is an article about um, these artists um, uh, who were in, in the Pacific working in the 70s there's an article on Hungary art uh, there's photography from Fiona Partington. It's just kind of a dark, meandering journey across the world. But you feel that someone picking it up, is that they'll see a connection between each piece, like between the photography and the articles. And the I think it pulls you through. Yeah. You know, it's, it's pictures of intensity rather than um, specific subject matter. It's, it's, it's a feeling that you get. Um, and there's just the visual elements how they just build upon each other and you know just color schemes and but it's not it's not obvious in, in the way that most magazines would be like okay this is a magazine about surfing or this is a magazine about hip-hop or you know that most magazines are built along demographic lines whereas this is more like well, what's this and hopefully we turn the page and what's this and what's this and just get slowly drawn into it is it a reflection of you, your and your brother Mark's sort of shared um, the, the things that you like? Is there ever anything in there that you wouldn't like to read or you wouldn't want to go I, and I see? I think it's beyond, it goes beyond what we like. And I think that's the challenge is we don't want it to be just about what we like. Um, I mean, ultimately, we do like everything we put in there, but maybe we didn't like it before or hadn't even heard of it before. Like, I hadn't... Uh, this this piece on the Hungary art scene was initiated by one of our editors, uh, Nicola Trezzi, who's actually... He's an editor, the editor-at-large for Flash Art magazine, which is one of the big art magazines in the world. Um, and he's uh, he said, hey why don't I get these guys to talk and uh, the well-known curators um, and art critics in Hungary to talk about the current state of the Hungary art scene and you know which is you know kind of alluding to how it goes on and during a um, uh, you know pretty tough regime not so different to America these days I guess but um, and so I'd never heard of any of these artists you know but I was like cool sounds interesting to me um, so, so I can't really say that's our our taste when I'd never even heard of it. So, do when when you're thinking about the journey that the magazine's been on over the past ten years, do you see your taste or your tastes in art or the, or writing um, or music 
progressing or do you see it as a just a sort of random scattering where you're constantly finding new things as you say people are sending new new things or are you are you becoming more discerning are there things that you would put in now that you wouldn't have been like sort of ready for 10 years ago I think you're staying I mean I back everything we've published over the years and I think that the 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 fact that we've been able to build an international audience is you know testament to the, the material we have included whether it's from New Zealand or Asia or wherever it has gained traction uh, but I think yeah you do your standards get uh, you know higher and, um, and you've got more to draw upon mm. more to, to choose from and um, yeah and as I said and that's partly why I wrote so much in the early days because I, it was harder to find enough writers that really met our standards so the only way to get it done was just to do it yourself mm. um, so I think, yeah, definitely. But we're interested into a lot of the same stuff, but it's just always, yeah, we're always looking to surprise ourselves. It's just building upon previous issues. When you say looking to surprise yourselves, I've, I've heard you say this in previous interviews. What, what do you mean? Well, I, I'm into personal growth, and so I need to incorporate things into my own life, into my own thinking that, that I didn't know before. I, I, I want to be constantly uncomfortable. I mean, I guess that's why I chose to live in Taiwan. Because when you get off your usual path, then you have accidents and you are forced to innovate and you come up with new combinations of things rather than just sort of copying previous forms. And do you think that when you look at your audience, because you have readers um, across the, you know, all over the world, more than your magazines available, I think, in more than 20 countries, and you've exhibited and, and hosted events and things all around the world. Is there a, I mean, how, how do you define your audience, if you can? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's funny because we're not like a corporation or anything, so we don't have any market research. Yeah. Um, so I guess we, we, we learn about it through the correspondence we get and the kinds of media coverage we get and the kinds of stores where it gets placed. Uh, you know, it's, as I was sort of mentioning to you before when we were chatting um, before this interview, we've kind of got like a global cult niche audience all around the world and you know those people tend to be people in the arts you know uh, arts professionals students designers you know people in the creative industries and then in Taiwan we've got a more of a mainstream audience here um, just because we've been so focused here and we've received a lot of media coverage so we reached into all sorts I mean we were, my brother Mark and I were doing a talk at a junior high school um, to a bunch of martial arts students last night. So we reach all sorts of different people. Um, so there's kind of like two different audiences in a way, a broader audience in Taiwan and a more niche, avant-garde audience around the world. But I'd also say too there's a real boom in independent magazines. Glo- um, globally. Globally. It's, uh, there's like in, in London there's a store called Mag Culture and there's also a blog and um, they run seminars and there's like a subscription service called Stack Magazines and there's a real culture so there's more people blogging about it, writing about it Um, there's uh, the Stack on Monocle Radio, we've been interviewed there a couple times, so there's this independent magazines boom happening and it's becoming an area of interest and there's not too many from 
Asia or New Zealand. So we kind of get reach a certain number of people just by virtue of being part of this boom, but representing some areas that aren't represented. I've heard it said about certain podcasts um, that, so for instance, the, the one that comes to mind is uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, which is, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's like one of the most downloaded podcasts in the world. Right. And he said, you know, the idea that you would pitch this idea to a, to a major media company and say, hey, I'm going to have a guy from wherever he lives on the West Coast in the US talk about ancient history for four hours and that's going to be the most popular thing on the internet or out there you know one of the most popular things no one would buy it yeah he the way he puts it is that there's just millions if not more people around the world that are interested in his niche and i can't is that the sort of way you see it with this that there's this there's this niche it's global but i mean if you were to talk about it just in taijong there might only be 20 people interested and you could never run a business or start a publication that way but around the world that niche is really big that's right I mean that's that's a big reason why we started this whole thing is we had minority interests and we were we were in Wellington and there weren't too many people interested in the things that we were interested in and so we had to find those people as a search for those like-minded people so there was kind of two two elements to it one is finding these people all over the world Mm. we're in cities you know just all over I mean even people in Russia and Hungary and Eastern Europe and we've got a subscriber from Saudi Arabia I don't know how he learned about us but we know so you know we end up in all these strange places so finding these people and because it's a small niche but it's everywhere and then there's this other um, proselytizing component where we're trying to actually turn people on to the things we're Mm. into and actually grow the audience build the audience so there's there's two and that was like in New Zealand we're like oh where's the stuff no one knows about it but they should be you know and so we wanted to turn people onto it including our New Zealand our own history because we was a in the early days we wrote a lot about New Zealand history because we felt like New Zealanders weren't tuned into it enough and so there's this proselytizing element in which we still have but there's also finding those those idiosyncratic people mm. wherever they may be I'd like to return to this the idea of what you're trying to do in terms of perhaps bringing more mainstream people for want of a better term into some of the more alternative things that you guys are involved in but first just this idea of I mean you guys started as a seriously local publication focused on a motorway extension in Wellington which is where we're both from well I'm from (laughs) well I'm I'm half from half from Wellington yeah but so this was um and a lot of these magazines or um publications that you're talking about are really focused on local issues yeah how do you see you know is there is there just an if you're interested in a local issue in your own town are you then is it sort of a universal theme that people are aware of and are interested in being engaged in well we you know the first issue was going to be a one-off we we felt strongly about an issue mm. that was the carving up of the arts district in wellington um, in order to build a, a bypass uh, motorway extension um, so we felt strongly about the issue and we just it was going to be a one-off we had no intention on continuing it but mm. once it started we thought well we just would edge it towards a bigger audience so at first we're dealing with 
Wellington and even Cuba Street, you know, very specific. And then we slowly extended out to try and reach people in Auckland or Christchurch, Dunedin. It was tough, quite tough reaching people in Dunedin, actually. Uh, um, but, but even though it's, that's my, my birthplace, but we really struggled to, to get it on the shelf there. Um, and then just slowly, gradually, and then we thought, oh, well, we're close to Australia, you know, let's try and reach out to Australia. And, and because my brother Mark and I are half American, so we always, so we just sort of, yeah, edge, edged it out. But also at the same time, we're trying to, but you're right, that the, the local issues, like the motorway issue, this is, I mean, this is an issue that people feel strongly about in Taiwan, all mm. over, gentrification. So we try and de- find the universal within the local, mm. is I guess how you could put it. And what about in terms of you know that that initial magazine was focused, as you say, on the the loss of a, a physical area that was home to a really vibrant creative scene. Does that kind of thing matter so much these days? Because you know you guys are based in Taichung, you're connecting with people all over the world. If you want to f- discover some noise artist from Norway. You can do it just as fast, probably faster than it would take to go and walk down the street and hear a live band. So, you know, is it has the world changed, or do you still need those physical, geographic, like communities of people working in close proximity? Well, well it is it is changing, and people are adapting to the conditions. And, um, and whether on a local scale in Wellington, where people artists got forced out of the of the city in a city, um, so in a, in a sense, we're not as dependent on them upon them. But I think they are important, and um, I think it's something we're losing. You know, I mean, you know, you can have thousands of friends on social media, but feel very alone. And and you know, it's interesting to think back about like two years ago, who was liking or commenting on your posts? Can you even remember? You know, I mean, it's it's quite fleeting. So whereas if you went to a physical location and you had a conversation with someone, you do remember that. Um, so I think it is important and for us we're trying to use the internet to ground out to facilitate these physical spaces wherever I mean the magazine is a physical space but also you know through organizing events and other projects which brings people together so I think it is important but you do have to be kind of a guerrilla operation these days there uh, we've lost that mm. For, for the creative pro- process, though, if you look at bands or actors or writers, um, do you still see that they need to be working, you know, close geographically or physically close to each other? Well, I, th- I think you could be successful based anywhere now, mm. and you know, like we've done our project. You know, I mean, we've you know we've been based in Wellington and Taichung City, which are not even the big centres within. Taiwan or, or New Zealand and yet we've you know we've received recognition and you know prestigious places in New York and London and you know and and these big centers where normally in the past you'd have to go and live in those centers and and do that and and bang on those doors whereas I actually think now we're more interesting to people in New York than young people living in New York you know because we're and we can reach them so so no you don't have to be in a big centre to do that now, and I think we do want to challenge that. And mm. you know, we're, we're li- we live in Taichung, where the rent is cheaper, and we couldn't do what we do if we were based in one of those traditional big cities. 
So going back to, I mean, you guys originally came to Taiwan, as I understand, to just teach English, make some money, but you're also still, right, you know, you're still involved with the creative scene. What do you see, you know, if you look back over the last um, 10 or so years where you've been coming in and out of Taiwan, what do you see as the advantages of doing white fungus from here as opposed to um, New Zealand? Well, you know, in New Zealand, we we really, and we intended, we wanted to be based in New Zealand, but we really ran out of options there. Um, we sort of, we, we had a wall with the limit in terms of the amount of support we could get. Mm. Um, and we also saw a value as being a bridge. I mean, we get a lot of traction from being a bridge between New Zealand and Taiwan and between New Zealand and the world. So I think that actually having two bases in a way does... There's, there's a certain amount of value from that to be gained from that but we found we, yeah we found it tougher going in New Zealand I mean we speak to a kind of a black sheep uh, demographic I guess in New Zealand and we still speak to those people uh, but we, there weren't enough of, of them to, to support us um, so yeah we just reached a point where we kind of really had to fold it or move and we decided to move mm. If you look at, say, um, the costs of putting together the magazine each year, because you guys have been self-funded the whole way through, does being, you know, what are the, the things that makes it work from, from Taiwan's point of view? Well, I mean, just simple things like printing the magazine is, is less than half the cost. So, that's so you print it in Taiwan? You print it in Taichung. Yeah. Now, you could do it from New Zealand, but it's not easy communicating with the factory, of course. I mean, yes. it's a challenge communicating with the factory being here. Um, it would be difficult if we're in Wellington and then we'd have to freight it and so forth. So just that one cost alone, less than half the cost to mm. print. Uh, the rent here is probably less than half the cost as well. Yeah. Food is cheaper, um, and we're also, you know, I mean, we're bringing, we're holding an event soon, and we're bringing an artist over from Tokyo. Mm. I mean, for us to bring an artist from Tokyo to New Zealand would really, I mean, we could do it, but it would be an endeavour, mm. you know. Uh, whereas, you know, we're close to Hong Kong and, and Tokyo and um, even Beijing, you know, so we can draw upon the region much mm. more easily. Uh, so I think there is so there's a variety of costs, and you know we've been able to make a living teaching at, at times through structured jobs and at times through private teaching. So there's the fact that we have a, a flexible way of making mm. a living, and, and we've got a surplus um, the, which we can invest in, in, into the project. Whereas if we're in New Zealand or most Western cities, we probably wouldn't have much of a surplus. So you, I mean, you guys are really active and really busy. It looks like it would be a full-time job, but then you've also been working as well. So what would like a normal week look like for, for you? Well, recently there have been times where I, where I have done very little work, and at the mo- recently I've been teaching full-time. Okay. But yeah, it's a, it's okay. Well, you know, I start work at eight thirty, and then I finish work at five thirty. Now I I get little bits done during the day when I can, you know. Don't tell my boss. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know there's little thing. You know, when I can, you know, with your phone these days, it's not too hard. I'm quite good at multitasking. So when I, you know, whenever I get the chance, you know, so I'll give even the 
playground watching the kids sending an email to someone <laughs> some government official or whatever yeah. so that's a strange double life but you know then at 5 30 we uh finish and we usually reconvene around 7 30 and then we work on it until around midnight or if there's a big project one or two in the morning you know yeah. and then we have holidays uh, you know, we'll work on it then or just whenever we can, you know, we just take every available moment and we can do this now because we've got so many people to work with. So yes. that's why, like, as I mentioned, I didn't write anything for the previous issue. I don't have as much time to research or write, but we've got a lot of writers and so we uh, are more directing things. So it, it, it's, it's I, I'm amazed that we actually have been able to do it. But, we, you know, we've worked really long hours, you know, so... You're pretty pretty intensive and we're the kind of people that that even when we're not working we're working <laughs> you know like maybe we're sitting around having a beer or a gin and tonic and what are we talking about well we're probably talking about our project you know or when we meet with our friends again what are we talking about so there's not much of a division between our recreational and social lives and in our project that kind of everything's tied in and even the teaching like there's a lot of crossover there like you know a lot of the skills we develop through teaching are applicable and vice versa so I think we're better teachers because of this project and we're better at doing this project because of the communication skills we've developed through teaching. Would you recommend Taiwan for people say if you're in a band or you're into developing a startup tech project or something like that I mean everyone's going to have different um, circumstances but as, as a general principle is, it, is Taiwan the sort of place where you can just earn that little bit of extra money that you don't have to work quite as much and you've got a, a bit more space whether it's financial or space in terms of the amount of time that you might not otherwise have to, to focus on a, on a project that's might be creative or might be a business but there's sort of no guaranteed income from it I think so. I I think that, yeah, there's that little bit of flexibility. In terms of an arts project, there's a lot of funding here for the arts, and that's been significant. Uh, we haven't drawn upon it directly as much, but often we've, like, for example, we held an event in Berlin, and, the, and we invited three Taiwanese artists to come over, and so they got funding from the Taiwanese government. So there's funding here. There's an openness and also Taiwan is not yet defined so I think there's some flexibility about the way it develops um, people there's a desire to uh, interact with foreigners so I think if you if you're doing some kind of innovative project and you don't see a way forward for, for yourself wherever you're based then you have to why not try it why not yeah it's worked for us anyway do you think that like a lot of people would just find the language barrier too difficult and I guess in the commercial space I could think of a few examples where people have tried to set things up here you know it might be as simple as a, a coffee shop selling kind of western style food or something that hasn't quite you know they've ended up folding and I've, I've heard of a, an artist recently that a French guy that um, came here set up a shop in Taipei and it just couldn't make it work you know just couldn't get local people interested but you guys have been I mean even though you're sold in lots of other places around the world and you're not dependent on the Taiwan market you have been successful on 
becoming what would be the term you've been you've become sort of a little bit popular here with Taiwanese people mm -hmm. you're not reliant on an expats community or anything what's been the key for you in, in that regard well I think the biggest thing is we work with locals and we give locals opportunities it's not just about hey this is our stuff why don't you um, consume it <laughs> um, it's like hey here's your stuff <laughs> and here's some other stuff as well and you know I the the thing that's really worked for us here is that you know Taiwan is not very well known around the world you know there's political reasons for that Taiwan isn't officially recognized as a country so um, when I'm in New Zealand people don't seem to be able to dis distinguish between Taiwan and Thailand mm. you know that I guess it's got Thai Thai so you know I mean and that's true in a lot of places so the fact that we're actually helping to to um, get the name Taiwan out there and is, is, is something being quasi ambassadors for Taiwan has been a real selling point so if you're a, if you want to get something going here I think the key is you've got to get local buy-in and like if I had a cafe here I would get local artists to perform or put their photographs or their paintings on the wall you've got to get people involved mm. what about the language aspect though because I know, I know that some of the work you guys have done you've sort of had English copy or English text um, and then on the same page or the, the page over you'll have uh, you know traditional Chinese characters that would seem to be something that could be a little bit risky it would be as on the one hand that obviously helps you engage with the local audience but does it sort of put off other people well that's interesting I mean we we were originally we wanted to make white fungus a bilingual publication and so we were, we were making steps towards that so we started working with translators mm. uh, and then we got offered a distribution deal a global distribution deal through white Cirque in London and um, it's a big company that distributes dazed and confused and another magazine and um, some of those titles and they didn't want us to do it as a bilingual publication they said there were different markets that wouldn't accept it like for example in Japan they wouldn't stock put a, a, mag, a bilingual English Chinese magazine on the shelf and there are other the other factor is that you need twice as many pages mm. so it's expensive so we decided to make white fungus just an English only magazine but then start a smaller magazine which is bilingual which is called the subconscious restaurant so we're kind of operating on two levels now the white fungus is not that easy for most people to actually read it because even if English is your first language it's still it's a challenging read even for English native English speakers um, so but again, it's just the fact that we're getting Taiwan's name around the world and we're representing Taiwan in exhibitions and events and so forth. So people like the story. Mm. And then we're, try we're trying to increasingly create something that is catered to the local audience. And when we do promotion, you know, we try and often make the like, posts on social media in Chinese and in English. So we work with a lot of translators. Mm. Uh, in terms of just practical aspects mark my brother mark's chinese is better than mine but we both have we, both some, get by, yeah. we can get by on a practical sense we have 
at the moment my Chinese is really bad because I, I haven't had much chance, many chances to practice. So I'm very rusty because I've been teaching all day. And mm. then, you know, uh, when it was in better shape, I have done some interviews in the media, okay. you know, but I'd need the questions beforehand <laughs> so I could think about them a little bit. Um, and we're going to both uh, start studying soon and we want to take that seriously so we're not so dependent upon our translators. But again, you're just innovating and it's yeah. difficult. Yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. Yeah. You guys are really into noise music. Yes. Before going any further, um, can you, what's your definition when you're asked by an annoying journalist well, to describe Yeah, it? well, no, noise is, is, is an interesting concept because in a way it's what our ears reject. It's what's outside of the system of representation that we're accustomed to. Um, it's atonal. Uh, I mean, noise well, What does that mean? Well, it's not, with, it's not within the, the, the tonal system of Western music. You know, it, it doesn't, you can't write it on a... Um, on sheet music, or at least you know some people have sort of tried to, but it's it's it doesn't yeah it doesn't sit. So I mean noise is it's a pretty flexible term because it can really encompass a lot of different things from your DIY guy in the basement to someone in the conservatory. Uh, so it is actually quite a broad term, but it ultimately it's rejecting that stable system. I and mean, think of it as think of it like film, you know, like film um, is you know classical Hollywood the system is it creates a, an illusion of reality and um, that, that we have a continuous stable identity and you know film the Hollywood film system everything goes through the individual usually the white male and you know um, and so everything gets put through this and 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 this this filter and the structure and, and we have the illusion that this is a stable coherent continuous world even though it's made out of fragments put together and music so and then you know you got experimental filmmakers who started experimenting with that like in the french new wave with doing jump cuts and um narratives which weren't linear and so forth and challenging that stable entity and noise is a little bit like that, you know. I mean, in a, in a simple sense, I mean, just like think of the pop song with the chorus. And uh, I think New Zealand, was it, I think it was New Zealand music writer Bruce Russell once wrote, talked about the tyranny of the chorus. You know, I mean, it, 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 there, there are many different ways we can organise our, our um, emotions and our, um, our palettes. And so noise is, is a challenge. To that, those conventional forms which we assume are natural and they're not natural, they're conditioned we're taught them from a very young age and they're not natural so noise is, is dealing with sounds and forms that are rejected um, just as in like just as, as like how art, like an artist like Robert Rauschenberg started making combines like in, in New York and you know in the, the 60s and you know, 50s and you'd go just walk around the street and find trash and put it in a painting you know noise is a little bit like that too it's it's finding those discarded forms and and looking for things that we've overlooked how would one how does one get into noise music i guess if i if i can 
be so bold as to venture it might be that you you get really into electronic music and then you sort of get bored of the um the pop aspect to or as you said the chorus or anything that's kind of conventional and if, if you take out the more extreme elements of that of an electronic music song and then put that back together you're kind of maybe getting closer to it but that's quite a journey for someone to go through I mean how does an average punter off the street when they come to one of your shows a noise show how do they approach it well I can talk about my how how did I get into it and then you're the average puncher and I guess what we're trying to hope to what we're hoping to achieve now for me myself because I didn't grow up with this you know I grew up in a mainstream family that watched Hollywood movies listened to the Beach Boys um and so forth and yet even within that there was always the seeds of it like for example I, I, I listened to the White Album as a kid and you know and a lot of people despise Yoko Ono for her influence on the Beatles but for me it was a, a lifeline or a, a, a path out so even by listening to the White Album as a four-year-old subconsciously some of these ideas were being ingrained in me now, I, I, I guess there were two ways. I, you know, we got into uh, electronic dance music and techno music, and so there was that led to it, um, and then that led to getting into more like um, stuff like Steve Reich or even in the earlier days Philip Glass or Terry Riley or you know, Minimalist, and then and on the other path was uh, Sonic Youth. You know, as I sort of you know was into rock music, and then you know I started getting into Sonic Youth and they have noise elements in their music and they um, so they're kind of leaping off points now how not, not everyone has the time to go through that full journey that we've been through but I would like to think that well we're trying to one you know noise artists in the past have been kind of geeky bedroom artists a bit nerdy we're, we're trying to like actually say it doesn't have to be that can be kind of edgy it can be fashionable even so we mix in other elements of performance art and even fashion we don't market it we were like well what if you gave these forms like really serious marketing not like some sort of um, scribbled flyer um, staple to the notice board in, in some music store but like actually like serious Marketing, this to the marketing, the quality of which you'd normally give to a mainstream product. What if we did that, and um, and presented it in a way where it wasn't, you know, this is the main event. And so, if you just create that excitement, and then you draw people in, and then if there's a crowd, they just get caught up in the excitement, and then hopefully their ears slowly become accustomed to it because it's a language it's just like I say to it like if you don't know Chinese and you're in a room full of people speaking Chinese that's noise or Japanese or Italian or Arabic that's noise but once you slowly start you realize that it's not just random there are actually tropes there are it's not necessarily random but if I think of um, one of the artists you guys is Steve Phillips Oh, oh, Dave Phillips. Dave Phillips. Dave Phillips. Dave Phillips. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So, but I mean, he puts hardcore, um, abrasive sound or noise, and then uses um, this is kind of like screaming or animals going through like animal cruelty, 
and then videos that are kind of accompanying it that are equally disturbing. And I just can't see that. I, I just wonder how you try and get someone into that <laughs> when, they're, when they're accustomed to listening to Miley Cyrus. Well, the bridge from Miley Cyrus to Dave Phillips might be um, a bit much. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there, uh, I, I, I think of it more like the metal scene okay. or the indie scene or the techno scene or the art scene. Um, now Dave Phillips was probably one of the more challenging artists we've, we've had to introduce. But again, I guess in that instance, you have other artists that aren't as abrasive that pull in the crowd. Yes. And then you like, bang, slam them with this <laughs> other stuff. And then they're kind of shocked and that becomes a, a thrill in itself. And mm. if, if, they, if they hate it and they're like talking about it, then that's great too. But this, this brings us to the point that I was sort of, uh, where you alluded to earlier around, you guys don't want to be fringe. You see what you do, if I'm getting this right, you see the things that you do and the things that you create as what people should be liking. I'm assuming that there's a little bit of distaste there for mainstream culture and the kind of any old thing that people will listen to or read or watch. You know, you guys are trying to... And bring people into perhaps a higher culture, uh, for want of a better term. How how difficult is that process? You know, I mean, you talked about the just doing a really good marketing campaign. What other things do you do to bring people? Across? Well, it's it's extremely difficult. Um, it's it's about as difficult a path as as you can imagine. Now, now I should say too that you know I do have a distaste for mainstream culture, but. I, I would say too that I have changed a little bit in my outlook over the years as I go further into the arts and realize how hard it is. I guess I'm starting to, I have respect and sympathy for everyone in the arts, even if they're doing something that I don't really like. Mm. Whereas when I was younger, I probably didn't have that, you know, I wasn't as sympathetic to it. So in, in the more, in the beginning, I was more like, you know, screw this and like, you know, like more of a punk sort of a. A sensibility, whereas I do actually have more respect for people, whether they're working in film or pop music or whatever. Um, but at the same time, I do feel that that this limited perception is part of why, as a species, we're kind of running ourselves into the ground because we're we're, we're stuck in a, a way of viewing things, which is leading us to hitting a brick wall. So I do think that these forms are evolu- that's part of the evolution, that they are actually a, a, a more sophisticated way of, of interacting and communicating. And what we're trying to do is bring them together in, into a coherent form, into a coherent package that could bring more people into it. Um, but it's, it's extremely hard, but the plus thing is that the kinds of relationships we build tend to be longer lasting I mean I haven't you know I've done some stuff in the mainstream especially when I was younger you know I did a little bit of writing I mean I remember I wrote an article about Fat Freddy's drop for the New Zealand Herald when I was a journalism student you know I mean but I, I found that when dealing with the mainstream the kind of connections you make tend to be more fleeting you know whereas um, but you have more reach and, and more institutional reach, more commercial reach, and you can uh, you get a bigger bang for your buck in the short term. But the kinds of relationships that we build with other artists and with our audience tend to be more longer lasting. So there is an accumulation over time. 
and I think that eventually it accumulates to the point where it starts to become sufficient in terms of quantity. Mm. Um, but yeah, we are trying to challenge mainstream culture. And but there's think there are artists I like in the mainstream, not many, but some. I really like Lord's first album. I'm not so keen on the direction she's heading in now. <laughs> okay. To go back to the, the noise scene, um, it's quite big in Taiwan. Can you talk a little bit about how it was that these noise artists, and maybe uh, it can be a little bit clearer, so these are people that are experimenting with sound creation, creating sound in different ways, recording sound in different ways, and then putting it together in different ways. Um, and it was big here or like relatively big in the 90s right yeah it was a strange time because taiwan was you know had come out of martial law and authoritarianism and you know global free market capitalism hadn't completely taken hold yet so it was in this strange in-between space and you had the dpp which was you know going from being i guess like a band party to becoming a you know eventually gaining power and is now you know in the government and in and, and this they were I guess funding all sorts of things that just shook up the status quo so there was like a, a, a really famous festival called post-industrial arts festival in 1995 which was hold, held in a, an old distillery in a, in a factory in Banchow and I think this was actually funded by the DPP and you know you wouldn't normally you know because it just shook things up you know and it just it stirred up the the grassroots and and so i guess they saw it as politically advantageous so there's a role for the avant-garde especially when things are changing you know um and there was this it was this coming out of this this martial law period where so many things were suppressed there was just a real like feeling of let's just try everything let's let's try this we want to make the most of our newfound freedom so and at the same time it was a, at a point where um i guess yeah the, i mean for example Wong Fu Ray played a pivotal role in this and he uh started a, a, a label and a publication called noise and and organized events and he had gone and studied in San Francisco. So had he gone and had he had he discovered this music overseas and then yes. brought it back? So it didn't develop independently of no um, everywhere else. No, I mean he he had gone to San Francisco and he was going to like warehouse parties and so forth. And he was like, "Wow, this is incredible!" So he was like, "I've got to get this happening in Taiwan." And so he started a. Uh, you know, a small publication and a label, and he and he helped stimulate this what was going on here, and gave it a focus. And so it's taken this journey from being a very much a grassroots thing to something that is like exhibited in museums and has institutional support, and there are university programs and so forth. But back in those days, it was really just DIY. Taiwan doesn't have a huge music scene. I mean, obviously there's pop music here and then there's kind of, a, as I understand it, indie prog rock kind of scene and, you know, smaller hip-hop scene and a little bit of electronic music. But it's not massive. It's not a, um, it's not this sort of a, a destination that artists will travel to from around the world. But h- how is it that the local noise scene in particular has been something that's sort of gained momentum? I- I think that some of it's just chance. You just had the right combination of people. I mean, you had like 
Wong Fu Wei, uh, Wong, Wong Fu Wei or Lin Chi Wei is another artist who's, who was in the early 90s organizing stuff and has become very well-known sound artist. He had some who were really organizing stuff and then he had lacking sound festival organizing events they were associated with the university Candela records and then we came along and we were kind of an x-factor within it because we were doing this in New Zealand but really you know struggling to gain traction with it and we came here and the first it was already kind of fertile terrain and mm. we became kind of an x-factor I think um yeah it's a good question it's just I think it's partly chance and I think it's partly when you're a smaller place if you start getting recognition in a certain area you, you tend to go with it because wherever you can compete or or distinguish yourself and so once Taiwan people started thinking of Taiwan in this way people were like hey this is cool you know so do you, do you think there's an aspect in Taiwan where people aren't exposed to much alternative culture and so when they get a taste of it, it's something that's quite new and appealing. Um, there's, there's still, uh, there's quite a bit of exposure to alternative culture. I mean, um, you know, there's, there was a strong dance scene here, uh, which we were very involved in in, in the early days. We were in the techno scene. Uh, you know, there's a big metal scene, um, that's, which is not as much my thing, but mm. it's still it's a subculture. There's a pretty big indie scene. Um, you know, you've got the Wall Live House, and um, you know it has a lot of events, and 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 now now you've got a club called Corner, which is probably like one of the leading techno clubs in Asia, outside of Japan. It's mm. probably the most recognised one, and they are really trying to bring sort of Berlin club culture to Taiwan, and now they're starting to get interested in experimental music and bring in avant-garde stuff as well yes. so I think there's there's it's surging there's a surging in a few different areas so there is there is more and more alternative culture I might have here. mischaracterized it a little bit but I, I think if you think um, main you know if you get in any taxi or you know television the, there's not much it's still very separate from yes. the mainstream yes. there's not much kind of going from the outside back into no. mainstream society uh, well, it's a big population, small island, but there's a lot of people here. Mm. Uh, so um, I think it's starting to gain steam now. I think it's part of the development of Taiwan and particularly Taipei. It's saying wanting to be on a global footing. I mean, you're looking to Tokyo or Beijing or Hong Kong and saying, well, we want to be, we want to have some clout as mm. well. Um, it, it's, but. There is a in Taiwan people like phrases, phenomenons, phenomena. They like you know you see it in a in a main, you know anything that's sort of different or novelty. You know is a novelty factor. Mm. People are drawn to it. So you've so. you've got um depopulate depopulate coming up this weekend in Taipei. What's the purpose of these events? Is it something where you can you just take advantage of? getting a few people that are in this in the area or bringing a few people in or are you are you trying to push things forward with this is this like an an event where you're doing like you said earlier surprising yourself seeing where you are you leading the culture or is this a reflection of what's good now i think both both i mean this particular event series is um driven it came out of a need 
because we were here and a lot of international artists would contact us like Dave Phillips um, whom you mentioned earlier and so we needed a mechanism of these artists who would come here and, and were passing through who wanted to do something with us how can we introduce them to a Taiwanese audience so we do other events as well sometimes smaller events this event tends to be when we've got an international artist we want to introduce to Taiwan and so we want to do that by working with the best of what's going on here um, and to create a, a brand and it's a you know I mean White Fungus was quite an abrasive brand at first and is now people are used to it and and we, and so we're, we're bringing in another pushing in another abrasive brand that people have new kinds of associations with in this instance like uh, with Zara Colleen Chance coming here from Auckland to do a residency at, at Artist, Taipei Artist Village and so we're like oh we really should do something with her while she's here and so we thought well let's also invite Fuyama Yusuke from Tokyo and then we'll get some other artists here so so it's a combination of both I think we are pushing the culture forward I mean I think it's unusual as I said I mean this is usually this kind of music has usually been a bit ghetto-ish mm. you know whereas we're not presenting it in that way I mean, when we were doing these events in New Zealand, if you got 50 people, that would be a smash event. You know, 50 people, like, whoa. Where, in, you know, in, in, in international art, avant-garde artists would pass through and they'd play to, like, 10 people, you know, sometimes, you know, even artists with big reputations. You know, whereas, like, the last big event we did here, we got more than four, we sold more than 400 tickets. You know, and we brought Mersbo here from Tokyo, Noise Pioneer, more than 300 people, you know. So we're, we're consistently getting, you know, crowds of, you know, when we really pull out all the stops, because we don't always go for that or have the material to do that. But, you know, we're getting, you know, big crowds, which you wouldn't normally associate with this kind of music. And I think that we're doing, well, one, like with the last event, we, we worked with the techno scene. So we mixed in techno and the dance scene with avant-garde art. Because we've always felt like the avant-garde, they need to learn how to have more fun, party a little more, like just, you know, get a little more physical. Whereas the, the dance club scene for us wasn't intellectual enough it was too hedonistic so we're kind of like drawing elements from both like okay the dance scene you know they know how to find they know how to hype it up they you know there's fashion there's you know whereas we like the the challenging nature of the avant-garde and and the intellectual side so we like if you mix it in then you sort of influence both areas and so some of the noise artists start working with beats more or start drawing in some of that and uh, the, and then we expose some of that dance crowd to something a bit more challenging and that leads outwards from it. So, and I think another element has been the fact that we're a magazine. If you go to a magazine event, it's more exciting and it brings in people like yeah, from the design community who are interested in it just from the, the, the element of what we do in print. So we're able to bring people into this arena that wouldn't normally go there mm. so I think it's quite unusual and even in like cities like New York or Berlin where they do have established audiences it's tough to get audiences of this size for this kind of work so I think that's something that we're 
doing here and we're trying to say to Taiwan hey this is unusual this is innovative like be proud of this like because people are starting to think I want to come to Taiwan and check this out is, is there a, a balance between being popular and being successful and getting three or four hundred people through the door and then is there a counter sort of issue that you're thinking maybe we're not being progressive enough maybe our you know are, are we selling out or are we becoming too uh, approachable well I, I think that that we're challenging enough that that doesn't happen I mean you know since we start we've got you know we've had a lot of media coverage in Taiwan and we've you know we reached a lot of people through the media here like probably hundreds of thousands of people and yet we don't have hundreds of thousands of people turning up to our events so if we if we reach um, although a lot of people will engage with us on different levels you know whether it's just the social media or the website or the print or some of the other auxiliary events or projects or we do a lot of talks or whatever so there's different ways they can engage with it but I think there's just a filter. That's why we, you know, we deliberately make it quite difficult. So even though we are more popular, it's still, it's challenging. Is it just, again, to go back to that thing of you're, you're able to get into that, that niche and it's, it's quite a big niche if you spread it out around the globe? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 a new in Taiwan. We are definitely bringing people. People are coming to our events that have never even heard of this stuff, and mm. that's unusual, and that's what we want. But they'll still be the more adventurous people, you know. They so it's so I'm not really worried about it, you know. If we can be, you know, as long as we're not compromising. I mean, we are. You know, we do reach out. I mean. Um, my brother's girlfriend, Mark's girlfriend, Johnny, who is a, who is part of our project and designs the magazine, and she comes from a background of fashion design, and she was like doing design for uh, Milk magazine in Taiwan, and so having her come in to uh, has been a real influence on us, the magazine and the promotion, the posters, the flyers, and um, so we've mixed in this, all this avant-garde stuff with like slick fashion design mm. and quite different been, yeah. from throwing your publication through shop windows quite different things. quite different um but and but but that throwing that that that, that, that there's a story in that mm. too i think is a story you know we've got a story so i think that hooks a lot of people in mm. but so far i don't feel like so we have tried to reach out and we do want to influence mainstream culture if we can but so far we haven't had that problem mm. but I think if it happened if, it, if we did an event and it became too popular and it became diluted I think our natural impulse would be to just do something really hardcore <laughs> and, and <laughs> that would sort of you know sort of yeah get the filter you know we're, we're quite good at, at driving people out of a room you know yeah. so we've done it before but you know the White fungus has been successful, even despite your efforts otherwise, perhaps, yeah. over the years. Um, and you're now distributed around the world. Your magazine can be bought at The Met in New York, is that right? Uh, uh, well, it's, it's, uh, it, it's at MoMA PS1, they yeah. sell it, and it's, it's been exhibited at, at MoMA, Museum yeah. of Modern Art, and, and, um, and 
we don't even know everywhere. It's it, it's you know it's been sold at the ICA in London. And and, and, and personally, you're how close are you to be able to stop teaching and be able to? I know you you guys are going off to study Chinese soon uh, full time, but are you are you nearly at the point that this could be your full time? business now after 10 how, how many years 12 14 years running it uh, 13 years 13, year, 13 okay. years you, you know it's getting closer it's not going to be as simple as like and if you look at because as, as I mentioned earlier there's a, an independent magazine boom and some people are able to live off it but it's never just in a traditional sense it's mm. not like most people who do it's not like they live off strictly like off selling magazines or even off selling advertising. The magazine is a component in what they do. So some people have a design studio and the magazine is like this with the face of it. Um, for us, we're getting closer to doing it a combination of things. Like one, commissions, because we get commissions to make other publications sometimes. Um, we the events are getting bigger and there's more sponsorship potential there whether through the government or maybe commercial sponsorship Um, we're starting to get commercial interest you know like from advertising agencies in terms of the magazine I don't know if that's going to work or whether we can make it work or uh, but there's also the teaching is quite serious for us like we do storytelling and I think we're going to we want to actually develop the education Mm. independently as well I think that's going to be part of it and we have an interesting situation where the two are feeding into each other like we were on television recently um, through the magazine on on Formosa television they did a, a segment on us and that was just nuts in terms of the our students and the students parents you know they just went crazy over that so it's great for our profile as teachers mm. and then you know so and then so I think that we are getting closer to being able to live independently through a combination of different things and we're interested in creating teaching materials and actually like you know like using our experience in publishing to and our experience in teaching to actually design you know so I think we're going to get there, but it's not going to be like in the past where it was like, oh, yeah, I had a magazine and I lived off the magazine in a straightforward sense. The magazine is best for our profile mm. and for our skills that we develop and our network. And I think we're going, we're increasingly finding ways to gain revenue. And, and, and it, is, it is drawing in more revenue. And we've got stuff coming up, like we've got an exhibition we're going to be part of coming in from independent creators international in New York it's called Publishing Against the Grain and they've selected art publications from around the world and this is going to tour the world for three years it's going to go everywhere and um, you know we got you know we're starting to get actually get paid fees for this kind of stuff not huge fees but you know it's, it, it adds up a bit of money here a bit of money there so I think that we are getting closer to being able to live as an independent business that has a number of different sort of strains of revenue. Ron, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks again to Noise Steve for the music for today's show. And thank you for listening to this edition of the Newslands Radio. 
please hit subscribe via whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. And of course, share it with anyone that you think may be interested. For daily news, opinion and analysis on Asia, please check out the Newsland's international website and sign up for our daily email newsletter. If you are in Taipei this weekend, check out the White Fungus website for details of their show, Depopulate 07, which is on Saturday, June 24.